Part 43 of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume 1, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 43. Henry Stern, alias Gentleman Harry. Convicted of stealing the Duke of Beaufort's George. This offender was one of the class called Gentleman Pickpockets. Being a fellow of good address and of tolerable education, he managed to buy some means to intrude himself into decent society, where he found it easier to carry on his schemes of depredation. He was indicted on the 12th of September, 1787, for robbing His Grace the Duke of Beaufort of his George, meaning the Star of the Order of the Garter, on the 4th of June previous, which was the King's birthday. From the evidence of his grace, it appeared that he was quitting his majesty's levee on the day in question, followed by his servants, his George being pendant from his neck by the ribbon, when, on his reaching the corner of St. James's Street, he found himself suddenly surrounded by a great crowd of people who pushed him about. He did not at first understand the meaning of it, when, presently, a thought struck him that the object was to rob him, and he found that his George was gone he called for his servants who directly came up and his grace pointed out a man in black as the thief he was searched however but nothing found and then the prisoner being seized the ornament was discovered in his pocket the prisoner denied the charge imputed to him and hoped that the jury would not suffer any reports which they had heard of his character to operate to his prejudice but he was found guilty and sentenced to be transported for seven years to botany bay Samuel Burt, convicted of forgery. Mr. Burt, previously to the occurrence for which he was tried and executed, bore a most exemplary character. The particulars of the forgery of which he was guilty do not appear to have come out on the trial when the prisoner pleaded guilty, but his object in its commission, as well as in refusing to deny his guilt, may be collected from the manner in which he addressed the court on his being called up for judgment. He said, My lord, I am too sensible of the crime I have committed, and for which I justly deserve to suffer, not to know that I have forfeited my life, and I wish to resign it into the hands of him who gave it. To give my reasons for this would only satisfy an idle curiosity. No one can feel a more sensible, heartfelt satisfaction in the hopes of shortly passing into eternity, wherein I trust I shall meet with great felicity." I have no desire to live, and as the jury and court in my trial thought proper to recommend me to mercy, if His Majesty should in consequence thereof grant me a reprieve, I here vow, in the face of heaven, that I will put an end to my own existence as soon as I can. It is death that I wish for, because nothing but death can extricate me from the troubles in which my follies have involved me. Sentence was then passed in due form but we do not find any entry of its having been carried out, and it is therefore very likely that the recommendation of the jury, alluded to by the prisoner, was attended to. The last notice which is taken of the case in the books is in the following terms. Samuel Burt, the unhappy youth who, under a depression of mind, abhorring the guilt of suicide, committed a forgery in order to suffer death by the law, was respited, dated December 1787. From the observations made by the prisoner, it is pretty evident that he was labouring under a species of insanity, by which he was persuaded that he must suffer death. 
the following instances of a similar description are of a character far more melancholy inasmuch as that in each the murder of a fellow-creature was the means adopted by the unhappy maniac for the offenders can be considered in no other light to secure his own death on the fourth of september seventeen sixty when north america was a british province mr robert skull and several gentlemen were playing at billiards in philadelphia when captain brullerman late of the royal american regiment came into the room and without the smallest provocation levelled a loaded gun which he had brought with him and shot mr skull through the body just after he had struck his ball it afterwards appeared that this desperate man had been brought up a silversmith and that having entered the army he became an officer in the royal american regiment but was broke on his being detected in counterfeiting or uttering base money he then returned to philadelphia and growing insupportable to himself and yet unwilling to put an end to his own life he determined upon the commission of some crime for which he would certainly be hanged by the law having formed this design he loaded his gun with a brace of balls and asked his landlord to go shooting with him intending to murder him before his return but the landlord fortunately for himself being particularly engaged at home escaped the danger he then went out alone and on the way met a man whom he was about to kill but recollecting that there were no witnesses to prove him guilty he suffered the man to pass he next proceeded to the tavern where he drank some liquor and hearing people playing at billiards in a room above that in which he sat he went upstairs and entered into conversation with the players in apparent good humour in a little time he called the landlord and desired to him to hang up the gun mr skull having struck his antagonist's ball in one of the pockets brullerman said to him sir you are a good marksman now i'll show you a fine stroke he immediately took down his gun levelled it deliberately took aim at mr skull who imagined him in jest and shot both the balls through his body he then went up to the dying man who was still sensible and said to him sir i have no malice or ill-will against you i never saw you before but i was determined to kill somebody that i might be hanged and you happen to be the man and i am very sorry for your misfortune mr skull had just time left in this world to send for his friends and make his will he forgave the murderer and if it could be done he desired he might be pardoned but brullerman died on the gallows exulting in his fate the same volume from which we make the above extract contains another case of the like nature and if possible more extraordinary it appears however that in this instance the judges of the unfortunate offender treated him as was most proper as a maniac the scene of this second murder is not mentioned it is stated that a youth of the name of david williams when about fifteen years of age was one day against his wish detained from school by his stepfather who greatly wanted his assistance on the farm while thus employed a log rolled on one of his legs which injured it to such a degree that it became nearly useless and by another accident he soon after hurt the other limb so that he was rendered a cripple before he had attained the years of manhood at these misfortunes he continually repined blamed his stepfather for keeping him that day from school whereby he received his first injury and mortified at his appearance among his comrades some of whom he said ridiculed him he became weary of the world and determined to terminate his misfortunes with his life for this end suicide and murder presented themselves the first he thought the most eligible 
but then it brought to his mind the horrors of appearing by his own violence before God, for which he feared he should not be pardoned, and therefore he was induced to abandon that for the latter, which he conceived would afford him a better excuse to the Almighty. He familiarised himself with this act of desperation by continually thinking of it, so that in time it became a pleasing subject of contemplation. The idea of the grief which it must occasion his mother at times almost unbent his resolution, but then the idea of its proving a sweet revenge on his stepfather bore down every other consideration. Thus determined, the next step of this unhappy youth was to select a proper subject on whom the deed should be committed. A grown person, or a child, was the question. The former, he concluded, must be under sin and guilt, therefore, by a sudden death, and thus unprepared, his damnation might be chargeable to him, and he be doubly guilty. The latter being innocent, he might avoid that charge, and he therefore resolved upon murdering some child. Now the particular object for this horrid purpose was the next consideration, but he confessed that, though he thought of it more than six months, yet none occurred until within five minutes of his committing his long-determined and bloody deed. All the morning of the fatal day he said that he felt an unaccountable and far stronger desire to commit murder than before, to use his own words, something like hankering after fruit. At this unfortunate moment he chanced to spy a little boy, named Ira, the son of Mr. Lane, a neighbour, gathering plums, and finding the parents absent he determined on seizing the opportunity and subject. He instantly took a gun, fired at, and slightly wounded the child in the side of the abdomen. Finding his victim yet alive, he limped to him, led him to the house, placed him upon a bed, and took a station at the door. The poor devoted little Ira had yet strength left to get from the bed in order to see whether his father was coming to cure him, and Williams answered that his father would come by and by, and bade him go to bed again and lie still. Again the murderer listened for the dying groan of the boy, but finding his work incomplete, horrid to relate, he took an axe, went to the bed, looked upon the innocent child, and while it held up its little hands for help, the monster struck it on the head, and by repeated blows chopped it in pieces. The wretched murderer was a youth of extraordinary mental talents for his years, until the fatal gloom overspread him. After the horrid deed was done, he spoke of it with calmness, observing that, though he had often considered the grief he should bring on his own mother, it never occurred to him the distraction it must cause her who bore the murdered child. His whole intent was to get himself hanged, and he supposed that the palliating circumstances under which the murder was committed would induce the Almighty to forgive him. Upon his trial he was deemed to be insane, and was treated as such. Thomas Gordon, the Younger, executed for murder. Mr. Gordon, the father of this wretched youth, was a surgeon and apothecary in London, from whence he removed his family into Northamptonshire, not long before the fatal circumstance which is about to be described happened. Mr. Gordon continued to practice in the country, and soon became envied and disliked from his being a stranger, and the consequence was that frequent quarrels took place. At length a justice's warrant was obtained against the father on a pretended charge of assault, and the constable went to Mr. Gordon's house in order to apprehend him, but the wife and son told the officer he was not at home. 
The constable, however, knew that he was in the house and went away, but soon returned with some neighbours, and with them was about to make a forcible entry, when the mother and son opposed them, the latter being armed with a gun. The populace threw stones at the windows, when the mother, in an unlucky moment, bade her son fire. He did so, and killed the constable on the spot. Both mother and son were tried, and found guilty of the murder. But Baron Thompson, who presided on the bench, observing that the mother was indicted as an accessory before the fact, and that the evidence proved that she was a principal, he had doubts whether she was properly convicted, and therefore reserved the case for the opinion of the twelve judges, who, upon solemn argument, confirmed the sentence against the son, but at the same time adjudged the indictment against the mother to be bad, and the poor youth received sentence of death. He was three times reprieved, from which he hoped, and the world flattered him with an opinion, that his pardon would ultimately follow, but an order at length came for his execution, and although he was in a state of insanity at the time, brought on by the cruel suspense in which he had been kept as to his fate, he was executed at Northampton on the 17th of August, 1789, aged only nineteen years. Thomas Phipps, Esquire, the Elder, and Thomas Phipps, the Younger executed for forgery. These malefactors were father and son, and their final exit from this life was attended by circumstances of the most heart-rending and melancholy description. The father was a man of good property, and lived on his own estate at Llwynine Mapsis in Shropshire, and he and his son were indicted for uttering a note of hand for twenty pounds, purporting to be that of Mr. Richard Coleman, of Oswestry, knowing the same to have been forged. It was proved on their trial that Mr. Coleman never had had any transactions with Mr. Phipps that required the signing of any note whatever, that about the Christmas before Mr. Coleman was served with a copy of a writ at the suit of Mr. Phipps the Elder, which action Mr. Coleman defended, and for want of further proceedings on the part of the plaintiff, a non-pro was signed, with two pounds three shillings costs of suit against Phipps. Upon this an affidavit was drawn up and sworn by Phipps the Elder, Phipps the Younger, and William Thomas, their clerk, for the purpose of moving the court of exchequer to set aside the judgment of non-pro, and therein they swore that the cause of action was a note of the said Coleman's for twenty pounds, which was given as satisfaction for a trespass by him, committed in carrying some hay off the land of one of Mr. Phipps, the elder's tenants. The court thereupon granted a rule to show cause why the judgment should not be set aside, but Mr. Coleman, insisting that the note was a forgery, the present prosecution was instituted against the father, son, and Thomas. After a full hearing at the Assizes at Shrewsbury, the father and son were pronounced guilty of uttering and publishing the note, knowing it to be forged, and William Thomas was found not guilty. Though convicted on the fullest evidence, the unhappy men, until the morning of their execution, persisted in their innocence, but when about to leave the jail, young Phipps made the following confession. It was I alone who committed the forgery. My father is entirely innocent, and was ignorant of the note being forged when he published it. They were taken in a morning coach to the place of execution, accompanied by a clergyman and a friend who attended them daily after their condemnation. On their way to the fatal tree, the father said to the son, Tommy, thou hast brought me to this shameful end, but I freely forgive thee. To which the son made no reply. It being remarkably wet weather, their devotions were chiefly performed in the coach. 
When the awful moment arrived, Mr. Phipps said to his son, "'You have brought me hither. Do you lead the way?' Which the youth immediately did, and in the most composed manner ascended the ladder to a temporary scaffold, erected for the purpose of their execution, followed by his father. When their devotions were finished, and the halters tied to the gallows, this most wretched father and son embraced each other, and in a few moments the scaffold fell, and they were hand in hand launched into eternity. September the 5th, 1789, amid a vast concourse of pitying spectators. The father was forty-eight, and the son just twenty years of age. Rennick Williams, commonly called the Monster imprisoned for a brutal and wanton assault on a female. The mind is utterly at a loss to conceive any reason which could urge this unnatural brute to the commission of the crimes which upon his trial were distinctly proved against him. The offence of which he was found guilty was that of making a most wanton and unmanly attack upon an unprotected female, upon whom he inflicted a very severe wound, no provocation whatever having been offered to him. For a considerable time before the apprehension of this offender, a report was very generally prevalent that many young and respectable females had been privately and suddenly wounded in various parts of their person while walking through the streets, in some cases in open day, by a villain who invariably succeeded in making his escape. Sometimes it was reported that the wound was given at a time when a man approached the lady for the purpose of presenting a nosegay to her, and it was said that, holding the flowers to her nose, he would stab her in the face with a sharp instrument which was concealed among their stems, while at others it was said that the wound was given in the thigh, behind, or in private parts of the person, so that occasionally the most serious injury was inflicted, and an almost universal terror prevailed. At length a man named Rennick Williams was apprehended, who was distinctly sworn to by a Miss Porter, upon whom he had inflicted a wound and at the sessions held on the 18th of July, 1790, he was put on his trial at the Old Bailey for the offences alleged against him. The indictment charged that the prisoner on the 18th of January, with a force and arms in the parish of St. James, on the King's Highway upon Anne Porter, did make an assault, and that he did unlawfully, willfully, and maliciously inflict upon her a certain wound, etc., against the peace. A second count charged the said Rennick Williams that on the same day and year he did unlawfully, willfully, and maliciously tear, spoil, cut, and deface the garments and clothes, to wit the cloak, gown, petticoat, and shift of the said Anne Porter, contrary to the statute and against the peace, etc. Miss Anne Porter deposed that she had been at St. James's to see the ball on the night of the 18th of January, 1790, accompanied by her sister, Miss Sarah Porter and another lady, that her father had appointed to meet them at twelve o'clock, the hour the ball generally breaks up, but that it ended at eleven, and she was therefore under the necessity either of staying where she was, until her father came, or of returning home at that time. Her father, she said, lived in St. James's Street, and kept a tavern and a cold bath there, and as it was not far she agreed to go home with her party. As they proceeded up St. James's Street, her sister appeared much agitated, and called her to hasten home, which she and her company accordingly did. Her sister was the first to reach the hall door, and as the witness turned the corner of the rails, she received a blow on the right hip, 
she turned round and saw the prisoner stoop down. She had seen him before several times, on each of which he had followed close behind her, and used language so gross that the court did not press on her to relate the particulars. He did not immediately run away when he struck her, but looked on her face, and she thus had a perfect opportunity of observing him. She had no doubt, she said, of the prisoner being the man that wounded her. She supposed that the wound was inflicted with a sharp instrument, because her clothes were cut, and she was wounded through them. The prisoner at that time escaped, but on the 13th of June, as she was walking in St. James's Park with her mother and two sisters, and a Mr. Coleman, she saw him again, and being agitated, her alarm was remarked, and the prisoner was eventually secured upon her pointing him out. The evidence of Miss Sarah Porter, the sister of the last witness, was to the same effect. She stated that she was well acquainted with the prisoner's person, and that he had followed her, and talked to her in language the most shocking and obscene. She had seen him four or five different times. On that night when her sister was cut, she saw him standing near the bottom of St. James's Street, and spying her, he exclaimed, "'Oh, ho! Are you there?' and immediately struck her a violent blow on the side of the head. She then, as well as she was able, being almost stunned, called to her sister to make haste, adding, "'Don't you see the wretch behind us?' Upon coming to their own door, the prisoner rushed between them, and about the time he struck her sister, he also rent the witness's gown. It was proved further that the prisoner, on his being pointed out by Miss Porter, was followed by Mr. Coleman, as far as South Moulton Street, where he entered a house, but being followed, his address was demanded. He for some time declined, complying with the request which was made, but eventually said that he lived at number 52 German Street. Mr. Coleman, however, felt he ought not to permit him to escape, and he therefore compelled him to accompany him to Miss Porter's house. He at first objected to doing so, on the ground of its being late, but force being used, he was obliged to obey. On his arrival, Miss Anne and Miss Sarah Porter fainted away, exclaiming, "'Oh, my God, that is the wretch!' Upon which the prisoner said, "'The young lady's conduct is very strange. They don't take me for the monster who is advertised.' He was assured, however, that he was known to be that person, and he was then conveyed in custody before the magistrates by whom he was committed for trial. It was also proved that the wound which had been inflicted on Miss Porter was of a very serious description. It was at the beginning, and for two or three inches, only skin deep, but then it suddenly sunk to the depth of four inches, gradually becoming more shallow towards the end. Its length from the hip downwards was nine or ten inches. The prisoner being called upon for his defence begged the indulgence of the court in supplying the deficiency of his memory upon what he wished to state from a written paper. He accordingly read as follows. He stood, he said, an object equally demanding the attention and compassion of the court. That, conscious of his innocence, he was ready to admit the justice of whatever sufferings he had hitherto undergone, arising from suspicion. He had the greatest confidence in the justice and liberality of an English jury, and hoped they would not suffer his fate to be decided by the popular prejudice raised against him. The hope of proving his innocence had hitherto sustained him. He professed himself the warm friend and admirer of that sex whose cause was now asserted, and concluded with solemnly declaring that the whole prosecution was founded on a dreadful mistake, which he had no doubt the evidence he was about to call would clear up to the satisfaction of the court. He then called two witnesses, who gave him good character, 
and who stated that he was at work for his master, Mr. Mitchell, an artificial flower-maker, in Dover Street, Piccadilly, up to the hour of one o'clock on the night in question. Mr. Justice Buller summed up the case to the jury. Having commented upon the evidence which had been produced, he said that he should reserve the case for the opinion of the twelve judges for several reasons. First, because this was completely and perfectly a new case in itself, and secondly, because this was the first indictment of the kind that was ever tried. Therefore, although he himself entertained but little doubt upon the first point, yet as the case was new, it would be right to have a solemn decision upon it. Upon the second point, he owned that he entertained some doubts. This indictment was certainly the first of the kind that was ever drawn in this kingdom. It was founded upon the statute of the sixth, George I. Upon this statute it must be proved that it was the intent of the party accused, not only to wound the body, but also to cut, tear, and spoil the garment. One part of this charge was quite clear, namely that Miss Porter was wounded and her clothes torn. The first question, therefore, for the consideration of the jury, would be whether this was done willfully, and with intent to spoil the garment as well as to wound the body. That was a fact for the jury to decide, and if they agreed upon this, then whether the prisoner was the man who did it. It should be observed that here was a wound given with an instrument that was not calculated solely for the purpose of affecting the body, such, for instance, as piercing or stabbing by making a hole, but here was an actual cutting, and the wound was of very considerable length and so was the rent in the clothes. It was for the jury to decide whether, as both body and clothes were cut, he who intended the end did not also intend the means. He left it to the jury to say, upon the whole case, whether the prisoner was guilty or innocent. The jury immediately, without hesitation, found the prisoner guilty. Mr. Justice Buller then ordered the judgment in this case to be arrested, and the recognizances of the persons bound to prosecute to be respited until the December sessions. At the commencement of the sessions at the Old Bailey on the 10th of December, 1790, Judge Ashurst addressed the prisoner nearly in the following terms. You have been capitally convicted under the statute 6 George I of maliciously tearing, cutting, spoiling, and defacing the garments of Anne Porter on the 18th of January last. Judgment has been arrested on two points— one, that the indictment is informal, the other, that the statute does not reach the crime. Upon solemn consideration, the judges are of opinion that both the objections are well founded. But although you are discharged from this indictment, yet you are within the purview of the common law. You are therefore to be remanded to be tried for a misdemeanour. He was accordingly on the 13th of the same month tried at Hicks Hall for the misdemeanour in making an assault on Miss Anne Porter. The trial lasted sixteen hours. There were three counts in the indictment, viz. for assaulting with intent to kill, for assaulting and wounding, and for common assault. The same witnesses were then called in support of the charge, as appeared on the trial at the Old Bailey, and they gave very clear, correct, and circumstantial evidence, positively swearing to the person of the prisoner. The prisoner produced two witnesses, Miss Amet and Mr. Mitchell, who attempted to prove an alibi, and the credit of their testimony was not impeached by any contradiction. The question, therefore, was to which the jury would give credit, for the evidence on both sides was equally fair and unexceptionable, and the prisoner was acquitted. The prisoner was again put to the bar ten o'clock the next morning, and tried on the remaining indictments, on three of which he was found guilty, 
when the court sentenced him to two years' imprisonment in Newgate for each, and, at the expiration of the time, to find security for his good behaviour, himself in two hundred pounds, and two sureties in one hundred pounds each. End of part 43